We now turn to the reading and preaching of God's Word. So I invite you to turn in your Bibles with me to Galatians chapter 1. I'll begin reading at verse 11 to the end of the chapter. If you are using a pew Bible, that can be found on page 1,154. I would encourage you to keep your Bibles open during the sermon as we look at God's Word together. continue on in our sermon series in Paul's letter to the Galatians. Let us now hear God's word beginning at verse 11 of chapter 1. For I would have you know, brothers, that the gospel that was preached by me is not man's gospel. For I did not receive it from any man, nor was I taught it, but I received it through a revelation of Jesus Christ. For you have heard of my former life in Judaism, how I persecuted the church of God violently and tried to destroy it. And I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my own age among my people. So extremely zealous was I for the traditions of my fathers. But when he who had set me apart before I was born and who called me by his grace was pleased to reveal his son to me in order that I may preach him among the Gentiles. I did not immediately consult with anyone, nor did I go up to Jerusalem to those who were apostles before me. But I went away into Arabia and returned again to Damascus. Then after three years, I went up to Jerusalem to visit Cephas and remained with him 15 days. But I saw none of the other apostles except James, the Lord's brother. In what I am writing to you before God, I do not lie. Then I went into the regions of Syria and Cilicia, and I was still unknown in person to the churches of Judea that are in Christ. They only were hearing it said, He who used to persecute us is now preaching the faith he once tried to destroy. And they glorified God because of me. As far as the reading of God's holy word made his blessing upon the preaching and teaching of it. Congregation of the Lord Jesus Christ, in the previous verses and the sermon that we heard last Sunday morning, Paul rebukes the churches in Galatia because they're deserting quickly the Father, God, and turning to a different or another gospel, which he says, is not really a gospel at all because there's only one gospel, only one good news. And that if anyone preaches a gospel contrary to to the one that he preached or any other person has preached, or even if the angels from heaven should preach a gospel contrary to the one that he preached, then let him be anathema. That is, let him be accursed. Strong language, isn't it? And I mentioned last week that anathema comes from an Old Testament understanding of dedicating something to destruction. And so let the one who preaches a gospel contrary to the one that we preach to you, let him be dedicated to destruction by God himself. Now Paul goes into a defense of his gospel ministry and his apostleship. He gives testimony to God's grace and mercy through the gospel in his own life. 
In other words, Paul shows how the gospel is at work in his own life and in the life of the churches. As he defends his ministry, he addresses the following points that I want to bring out in this passage, in this sermon text. First, he addresses gospel origins. Gospel origins. Secondly, he addresses gospel grace and power. Gospel grace and power. And then thirdly, he addresses gospel peace. Gospel peace. First, gospel origins. Look with me in your Bible, verse 11. For I would have you know, brothers, that the gospel that was preached by me is not man's gospel. For I did not receive it from any man, nor was I taught it, but I received it through a revelation of Jesus Christ. In the early church, during the times of the apostles and prophets, when they preached the gospel, it was that very thing. It was preaching. It was orally communicated, verbally communicated. It hadn't been written down for the churches yet. And so it was verbally communicated. They would go to towns, villages, countries, and proclaim the message of the gospel to all peoples, Jews and Gentiles. Then it became necessary that the apostles and prophets wrote down the good news in the form of letters, gospels, narrative like Acts. And the word of God proclaimed verbally became what is called inscripturated. That is the word of God expressed in written word. The word of God expressed in written word. And so for many reasons, the apostles and prophets wrote letters and gospels. And in the context of Galatians, Paul wrote this letter. Why? Because the churches that received the gospel orally or verbally were now under attack and deserting quickly the one that they once embraced. And so Paul writes this letter, and this writing becomes inscripturated. It is the Word of God expressed in written form. And so really, Galatians wasn't only read by the Galatian churches. Just like Colossians wasn't just read by the Colossians. As Paul says, pass this letter along to Laodicea. Have them read this letter too. Because the letters, that the books of the Bible speak to the church in every generation. Because it is the written word of God. It is alive and active. And speaks to the church in every generation and to every human heart. And so it was necessary for Paul to get the gospel right and write it down and distinguish it from the false gospel that was being preached to the Galatians. It's important for us to understand that. We cannot undervalue or underestimate the importance of written word. Written word. There's no hearsay here. You have it written down. God has it written down for you so that there's no hearsay. 
And Paul's absence of false gospel threatened the life of the churches in Galatia. And it's imperative that he writes a letter that communicates to them the very truth and essence of the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ, crucified and risen for sinners. And having expressed and rebuked the Galatians for deserting God and turning to a different or another gospel, he argues that there's only one because it originates with God himself. It comes from a revelation of Jesus Christ. The good news isn't the invention of man. In fact, that's a good trans- that would be a good translation of verse 11. For I would have you know, brothers, that the gospel that was preached by me is not the invention of man. It's not of man's opinion. He didn't receive it from any man. He wasn't taught it by any man. He received it by revelation of Jesus Christ. Your faith and my faith is grounded in truth. And that's what Paul wants them and us to know. That what Christians believe is not some fairy tale made up by man or some myth of man. It is grounded in God because it originates in God and in his son, Jesus Christ. And we need to hear that as Christians. I've used this example before. Many years ago, I'll use it again. Erwin Lutzer, he was debating an atheist in what was called a soapbox debate. Each person who was ready to give an argument would stand on a soapbox and give his argument. And Erwin Lutzer and the atheists were debating, and the atheist gets up on his soapbox and says, religion is nothing but a bunch of made-up myths and fairy tales. And Erwin Lutzer gets on his soapbox and says, that atheist said the, the absolute truth. It is a bunch of made-up fairy tales and myths. But Christianity is not because it originates in whom? In God. There's a big difference, isn't there? Christianity originates in God. The gospel originates in God and from God through Jesus Christ. And Paul received the good news through or by means of a revelation of Jesus Christ. You remember on the road to Damascus, the risen Christ revealed himself to Paul, and that marked the beginning of a new life, a new creation in the Apostle Paul. He had a newfound faith and life in Christ. It marked the beginning of his apostolic calling. Notice that verse 16b. Verse 16. God was pleased to reveal his son to me. In order that I may preach him among the Gentiles, I did not immediately consult with anyone, nor did I go up to Jerusalem or to those who were apostles before me. But I went away into Arabia and returned again to Damascus. Did Paul receive his seminary education in Arabia from Jesus Christ, his master? Very well could have been that that way. Paul received it by special revelation from Jesus himself. Just as the apostles, the 12 apostles, received revelation from Jesus in his earthly ministry, 
Paul's gospel was from the Jesus, the risen Lord, which makes it God's gospel. If you're taking notes, Romans chapter 1 and his greeting, Romans chapter 1 verses 1 to 6 speaks to the gospel of God. The gospel of God. It is God's gospel in Jesus Christ. So it is both God's gospel and it is, both, it is also the gospel of Jesus Christ because the Father and the Son are one. And if any man tampers with the revelation of the risen Christ or the revelation of God the Father and plays fast and loose with it and distorts it and deceives people, then let him be anathema. Congregation, since the, since the gospel originates in the Lord and his gospel is recorded in the Bible, the word of God, the written word, what are the implications of this? What, what are the implications of gospel origins? I've already stated a few, but I want to state a couple more. I want to state a couple more because in the Christian faith, Christians can stu uh, struggle with doubt. Yeah. In other words, we haven't arrived. We struggle with things in life. We question. And sometimes it's good to question. Sometimes that is good. Other times, not so good. One of the implications is that we can have confidence and assurance that our faith is rooted in Christ and his word. You and I can have assurance and confidence that what God's word says is true. Secondly, we can have a sure and certain hope that what we have believed is not in vain. That's another important application. That what you and I believe, by God's grace, enables us to live the Christian life, to live day by day with a sure and certain hope that not only what we believe is true, but what we believe is true will come to fruition when Jesus Christ takes us home to our heavenly inheritance, or should he come again to judge the living and the dead, and we be found at his side in that day. Our hope is built upon truth. If it wasn't built upon truth, we would be the most pitied in this world. The most pitied. But thanks be to God that he brings the written word, he brings the gospel to the apostles and prophets, so that they are written down for us. So that Christ, by his spirit and word, takes this written word and writes it on our hearts, speaks to our hearts, grants us assurance, grants us confidence, grants us forgiveness of sins, grants us hope, and all those blessed benefits that come through this gospel origin. And Paul wasn't ashamed of the gospel that he received and preached. For he says, I am not ashamed of the gospel, for in it is the power of God to salvation to everyone who believes, 
to the Jew first and then to the Gentiles. Where are you? Where am I? Are we ashamed of this gospel origin, where it comes from? Are we bold enough to to be servants of Christ, Christians who are bold to proclaim that this message comes not from man, but from God himself? And because of that, that's where the authority comes from. It comes from God himself. This gospel origin produces gospel grace and power. Secondly, in the gospel, God gives sinners what they don't deserve. Christian, if you are a Christian, if you call yourself a Christian, God gives you what you don't deserve. And that is grace and power, mercy, not judgment. Grace, not wrath. So Paul now transitions from gospel origins to gospel grace and power that he has known in his own life. Look with me in your Bible at verse 13. For you have heard of my former life in Judaism, how I persecuted the church of God violently and tried to destroy it. And I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my own age among my people. So extremely zealous was I for the traditions of my fathers. Yes, Paul gives a testimony. Testimonies are good. Christians ought to be giving testimonies of God's grace and power in their lives. And that's what he uses here. Paul was a rising star among the Pharisees in Judaism. And he uses the word Judaism for a specific purpose, which we'll see down the line as we hear future sermon series on this letter. Judaism, a Jewish religion that he sets before us to, to prepare us for an upcoming argument that he's about to make. But for now, I'll only say this, that in Judaism, they held the two laws that came from Sinai. They had the written word, the written law, the Torah, the law of Moses, but also the oral law. That is the interpretation of the law that rabbis and teachers would pass along by way of tradition to young boys and girls and families. And that oral law was also held. We think of Jesus when he rebuked the Pharisees because they held to this oral law that was in contradiction to the written law. And so this oral law became written down in approximately 200 A.D. called the Talmud, where you have... Oral interpretation of the Old Testament law written down now for rabbis and scribes to teach the people. This is what he held on to. This is what he believed. This is Judaism. And it promoted a works righteousness. And Paul says, I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my own age among my people. Listen, so extremely zealous was I for the traditions of my father. Father's oral tradition, traditions of my father's oral tradition. He goes on to say, in verse, he says in verse 13, I violently ravaged the Christians. Violently means extreme measures. He persecuted with exceeding measure or surpassing greatness. And from the Greek word, we get the English word hyperbole. 
He persecuted with extreme measures. For example, turn with me to Acts chapter 7. Keep your finger on Galatians 1. Turn with me to Acts 7. Beginning at verse 57. Stephen gives a history, a redemptive history of God's work during the, in Israel's life. He speaks to the power of God, the, the fulfillment of God's promises. They, the, the crowd gets to a point where they're so angry and hate Stephen so much that they stone him. Verse 57, but they cried out with a loud voice and stopped their ears and rushed together at him. Then they cast him out of the city and stoned him. And the witnesses laid down their garments at the feet of a young man named Saul, who we know as the Apostle Paul. And as they were stoning Stephen, he cried out, Lord Jesus, he prays to Jesus, receive my spirit. And falling to his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. Even in the midst of being killed for the cause of Christ, he asked the Lord not to hold their sin against them. And when he had said this, he fell asleep. That is, he died. Now look with me at verse eight, or chapter 8, verse 1. And Saul approved of his execution. And there arose on that day great persecution against the church in Jerusalem. And they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. Devout men buried Stephen and made great lamentations over him. But Saul was ravaging the church and entering house after house. He dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. Congregation, this is Paul, his former life. This is Paul, who was called Saul. You know, Jesus said in John 16 that the hour is coming that whoever kills you thinks he will be offering a service to God. Paul the Apostle thought that he was doing service to God. Imagine that. You've heard of the phrase religious nuts? Those who use religion to do evil and violence? That was the Apostle Paul. Someone who was supposed to be exceedingly profound in Judaism, one who was supposed to love his neighbor as himself, supposed to love his enemy, is ravaging the church in his former life. Acts chapter 26, verse 9, if you're taking notes, he says, I myself was convinced that I ought to do many things in imposing, opposing the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth. He was convinced that God was telling him to do this, that God was calling him to do this. And he locked up many saints in prison, having received authority from the chief priests. With raging fury, Paul says, he persecuted the churches even to foreign cities. This is the former life of Saul, who is Paul the Apostle. Who has the power? Who provides the grace? 
to save such a man. Gospel, grace, and power alone can bring a man like Saul into the kingdom. Where we see his convert, he then speaks to his conversion to Christ. He points to his former life, and now he's going to point to his conversion to Christ. Verse 15, but when he, God, who had set me apart before I was born, and who called me by his grace, was pleased to reveal his son to me in order that I may preach him among the Gentiles. And when I'm studying this passage, I was blown, I'm, I'm just blown away. I'm still blown away by it. That even though Paul was a ruthless, evil murderer, God in his divine plan, in his divine wisdom, and according to his providence, set apart this man. Set apart this man before he was even born to be called to grace in Christ and to be a preacher to the Gentiles. Do you hear what he's saying here? That even throughout the course of his violent and destructive actions against the church and Christians, both men and women, God had a sovereign plan. And he permitted Paul to go his own way until the time when he would call him and, and call him to grace. Convert him to Christ. He was once a destruction, a destroyer of the way a violent man promoting death and destruction and who actually wasn't doing service to God, but now by the power of the gospel, he was radically changed from a persecutor to a preacher. From a persecutor to a preacher. From a sinner to a saint. From a destroyer of the church to a disciple of Christ. This is the man that Christ revealed himself to and gave his word to. This is the man who makes up most of the New Testament books or letters. A murdering, violent man I haven't said this in a long time, but put that in your theological pipe and smoke it. Yeah. Because I, when, when you consider the application of this, there are a couple things that come to mind. A couple things that come to mind. That it is God through his gospel, the gospel of grace and power, that transforms and and reconciles sinners to saving faith to their God. And it changes the way that you and I view God. It really does. Who is your God? Oh, oh God can forgive those sins, but not those of the murderers in prison those whom divine hope ministers to. 
It changes the way that we view people. At least it ought to change the way we view people. How do you view your fellow Christian? How do you view your, their past? Oh, I remember when she was a little girl. Man, she was a pistol. Who is she now? Who is she now? In Christ, who is she? In Christ, who is he? Remember, the old is gone, the new is come. His conversion to Christ was profound, and he uses it to show gospel grace and power. And then God calls him to preach to the nations. He says that God was pleased, verse 16, to reveal his son to me in order that I might preach him among the Gentiles. It's very ironic. There's a lot of irony in Scripture. A lot of irony. There's a lot of different genres in Scripture, and one of the rhetorical, grammatical devices of the authors of Scripture is irony. And here we have an irony where the one who was once a persecutor who ravaged the churches in foreign cities, now goes to foreign cities and preaches Christ. Not only that, he was called to preach, as 2 Corinthians verse, or chapter 4, verse 7 says, but we have received this treasure in jars of clay to show the surpassing power belongs to God and to us. Surpassing power is the same word used for violently. <laughs> he persecuted the church with exceeding measure, and now he's proclaiming the exceeding measure of God's power in the gospel. Oh, it's beautiful. It's beautiful. Paul knew himself to be the chief of sinners because he knew only his own sin and sinfulness before God and Christ. And for the Christian, this declaration could be true as well. We too can say of ourselves that I am the, the chief of sinners. I can say, Roberto, you are the chief of sinners because I can know my own heart by God's grace and knowledge. I can know my, of my own sin, my own despair apart from Christ. I can know that apart from him I am nothing. So I can say truly of myself that I am the chief of sinners. Can you say that of yourself? Because I compare myself to not anyone else's sin or anyone else's life, but God's standard and righteousness. And when I compare myself to that, I fall greatly short. And it should drive us to our knees where we say, Lord, have mercy on me, a sinner, and not pray like the Pharisee. God, I thank you that I'm not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. I go to church twice on Sunday and even to gems, cadet, Bible studies. I do all these things. Surely I must be good. Look at me. No, Lord, have mercy on me, a sinner, the chief of sinners, when I compare myself to your righteousness, your goodness. 
And gospel grace empowers, transforms the chief of sinners, even myself. Grace, gospel grace and power truly changes the way we view God and our communion with God and fellowship with God. It also changes the way that I view other converts to Christ. I've already said this, Divine Hope Seminary. God's grace and power at work in the inmates through the ministry. Convicted criminals being converted to Christ. God setting them apart before they were even born. To be called and converted to Christ. I don't know if you've noticed in the prayer for Pastor Ken, in the second point, he has this, uh, uh, it's actually a prayer of praise. Frequently students tell us that they are glad they came to prison because it was in prison that God brought them into the kingdom. Rejoicing God's saving work. Now, does that minimize the crime? No. But in terms of their spiritual bondage, they have been set free. We have been set free. You know, congregation, I lived a pagan, godless life for 23 years. The first 23 years of my life. And when I came across, when I was studying this passage, I could not help but reflect upon my own life and God's power and grace in my life. And to think that even before I was born, even before I was born, that God would set me apart to be for one a Christian by his grace and mercy. And secondly, to be even before you <laughs> to preach. It blows every category in my mind away. These testimonies that we hear are testimonies of God's grace, of God's power. They're not meant to draw attention to self, but draw attention to God who does the transforming power in our lives. And it's a beautiful thing. And at this point, I'm just going to go into doxology. Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his ways and judgments. How inscrutable his ways. Paul speaks of his former life, his conversion to Christ, and of his call to preach this glorious message to the Gentiles. A message that came from God, that originates with God. Lastly, gospel peace. Paul went from Jerusalem to various places, Syria, Cilicia. He was still unknown in person to the churches of Judea that are in Christ. And verse 23, look at me in your Bible. They only were hearing it said, He who used to persecute us is now preaching the faith he once tried to destroy, and they glorified God because of me. Indeed, the gospel of Jesus Christ, the good news of Christ crucified and risen for sinners, is called the gospel of peace. In fact, Isaiah 54 calls it the covenant of peace. 
Why? Because God and man are reconciled through the cross. Sins are forgiven, and we have been adopted into God's family, and we have peace with God. We are his children. But the gospel of peace also brings peace between one another. Imagine for a second, consider this. You hear about a man who violently imprisoned and even authorized the killing of Christians. Maybe it's a fellow Christian that you knew on the other side of town or in another country. You hear about his ravaging the church like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. Imagine that for a second. And now you hear an elder comes up to the pulpit and says, hey, by the way, such and such is going to come here and preach. Wait a second. He killed my, my Uncle Joe who followed Christ. He used to do this. He used to do that. How will the church receive him after hearing the word that he has been converted to Christ, that he is a new man? An infamous, ruthless man rounding up Christians like sheep and imprisoning them. This is the guy you're going to bring to church? This is the guy you're going to bring into the pulpit? This is the guy that you're going to have teach us day in and day out? What does the gospel of peace do? Look with me in your Bible again. They only were hearing it said, he who used to persecute us is now preaching the faith he once tried to destroy. And they glorified God because of me. The peace of Christ that brought God and Paul together now brings Paul and those in Judea together. The gospel of peace changes the way you and I view one another and how we view our past. Will we glorify God because of God's work of redemption in another brother or sister's life? Or are we going to bring out our checklist, bring out our res- his resume of unrighteousness, and count that against him or her? No, they are righteous in Christ. Paul is now righteous in Christ through faith in Christ, and they glorify God. Because of Paul and the saving work of Christ in his life. Which he will now suffer for. Divine irony again. He who used to cause suffering upon the people of God will now be the one who suffers at the hands of those who oppose the way of Christ. Gospel origins, gospel grace and power, and gospel peace. Paul makes it very clear that in the gospel of Jesus Christ alone, we have the very word of God. And in the very word of God alone, God graciously forgives us and has mercy upon us and displays his power through us. And in the gospel alone, we have peace with God and peace with one another. And we glorify God because of the work of salvation that he does in his church. Are you and I declaring this awesome, wondrous work of God to one another and to those who do not know Jesus as Lord and Savior? Let's pray. Father in heaven, we pray 
that you, O Lord, would grant us a deeper assurance and confidence in the written word of God that teaches the whole counsel of God, teaches the way to forgiveness and reconciliation, teaches us the way to peace with God through Christ our Lord. And Father, we pray that your written word and by the power of your Spirit, we, O Lord, would have confidence that you, O Lord, are doing a work in your church, that you are drawing many from every tribe, tongue, and nation to yourself, and that many from every tribe, tongue, and nation have been bought by the blood of the Lamb, and by your Spirit you will bring them into your kingdom. Oh, Father, help us as a congregation to be bold in our faith, to be confident in your word and in your love for us, and to live in the hope that is set before us in Holy Scripture. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.